some of you know Adam, I've known Adam for a few years, mainly through his in-laws, through Mick and Ann Smith. Uh, Adam and Sarah have taken on the responsibility. He's the vicar for Paulton and Farrington and High Littleton. So this is, in fact, you can see that beautiful church out there is, is one of your charges, isn't it, Adam? You know, if you could pick and choose, that's rather a nice one, isn't it, really? So uh, I'm going to hand over to Adam. Let's pray for him as he comes and speaks to us. Father God, we do thank you for Adam, for his ministry here in this immediate community, for his family. Pray you'll bless Sarah and the children, Lord God, his home. And pray, Lord God, that as he shares with us this afternoon, just give him those words that will not only comfort us, but challenge us and allow you, by your Holy Spirit, to change us, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If need be, right. So I've been trying to look around the room and suss out who I know, who's seen me from various bits and bobs, who hasn't ever met me before. So and what I'll do then is try and give some sensible bits. So yes, at the moment, at this precise moment, I live in Poulton in the old, well, in the 1950s vicarage behind the church, not the huge old mansion but the municipal looking building that's just behind the church. Um, yeah, and I am now responsible for Polden Church and Farrington Church and Hilton Church from just before lockdown started is when we did that. So that is current status. Um, and then I can jump backwards and give you guys, I've been told I'm basically telling you how I ended up here. So for some kind of point of reference, who was actually there when I got baptized? Yes, 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 yes. See, quite a few people, but not everybody. So that was sort of part, this part one that I explained at that point, but I'll go over some of that again, just for if you don't know what happened. So I grew up in the next village over. I grew up in Clutton. Um, so I am very, very local. I never made it that far away. It turns out the gravitational pull is quite strong. So I think we got as far as Western Supermare at one point, didn't like it, came back. We lived in Bath and Bristol and various things, but essentially grew up out there, which is a very interesting thing growing up in these villages. Um, and it was picturesque and lovely and a beautiful family and Clutton was amazing and loved it all, but came with all kinds of interesting baggage. I, we were doing something the other day where I still had to kind of take stock of the fact that probably 50% of my crowd that I grew up with have ended up sort of catastrophically ruined by drugs or something else like that that actually life in the villages is not very is not as safe and picturesque as it appears um but i had a wonderful time and uh as we were growing up and leaving school i met some people i met someone from my tutor group at school the other day who didn't remember me at all no, and that was quite an interesting experience there of thinking, oh wow, I made so little impact on that person. They literally couldn't remember that I existed. And uh, yeah, and her partner was saying, did I get into trouble at school? And I was having to explain that I never got caught for anything whilst I was at school. And then I left school and at a party just after school, met Sarah, Anne and Mick's daughter. Um, who uh, she had just, I think, crashed out of your guys' lovely church at that point, rebelling as she does against absolutely everything, and had met me with my silly car and my Mohican haircut and all the rest of it to be her teenage rebellion. And we went off together, and that's when we headed off to Western Supermare. Um, 
which turned out to be, you know, the bedrock of stability of both of our lives because we have now been together for, what is it, was it 2023? So we got married in 2000, so married for 23 years this year, together for about 26 years. Um, But we crashed around a bit as teenagers and gradually grew up to the point where we both went off and got degrees. Uh, I studied something called cultural studies, which was, Sarah describes it as a Mickey Mouse degree, which is true because we did literally study Mickey Mouse as part of the thing, but it was basically philosophy and politics and culture all rolled up together with a foundation of extraordinarily argumentative French philosophy. If anyone's familiar with Derrida, that is where we went with that. And, and I became excellent at arguing. A very, very argue, And particularly the whole point of the kind of approach that he took is that you wouldn't come with your own viewpoint. You would just break apart other people's ideas from the inside. So take everything that you're bringing to me and then just break all that down into its component pieces until it all falls apart. And that was the way that my brain worked. So I was just sort of an excellent wrecking ball for other people's belief systems. During that period, me and Sarah got married. I became part of Anne and Mick's family, people that definitely have a belief system. Um, And Anne would have endless, very, very polite conversations with me about God and church and the things they believed and what she felt. And looking back on it, I was not only unreceptive, but, you know, very rude and argumentative in what I was doing. Not rude, rude, not foul language rude. But my general view of Christianity was, at the very best, this was just played out. It had its day and could now be consigned to the dustbin of history. Or at very, or the worst was still a very damaging and harmful force in the world. And that was essentially where I stood. And so from there, though, because I'd married into this family, they said, oh, you must come, come to this talk in Bath. There's someone giving a talk at the forum, please do come along. And I thought, right, I'd be nice to my in-laws. And I have no idea who it was, and I have no idea what he said or any of the rest of it. But at the end of the talk, he said, anybody that wants to be prayed for, get up out of your seat and come down the front. And I found myself coming out of my seat and walking down to the front of the church to be prayed for. And so this, that was the initial turning point for me. I absolutely fell to pieces in that moment that I was in the circumstances, like my whole life was a book, I think this is what I described at my baptism, like my life was a book, that God was just leafing through all the pages and saying, yep, I know everything that you've done, I know all of your rubbish and all of your baggage, and I love you. I love you completely. And yeah, spent the rest of the night crying and blah, 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 and you know, all of that stuff. And what do you do from that point? I did not believe any of this existed. I had massive problems with organized religion and all the harm that that had done in the world and every way that it was tied up with power and colonialism and slavery and blah, blah, all all of these things. But it turned out that God exists. You know, not a faith of my choosing, not something that I had arrived at because I thought, 
you know, this makes sense and this is the most rational thing or this will suit my lifestyle or any of these other bits. But the weird God from the Bible turned out to be real. And so from there, there was a journey to go on. And for years, we didn't do... I just had to put this in the background, me having conversations with God and saying, well, what about all of this other stuff? What about all these weird people? What about all of these strange things that they get up to? What about all the damage they've done? What about... But it doesn't change the fact that it's real. It doesn't change the fact that what was in the Bible was true. And so from there, we then go on this kind of odyssey of church exploration, starting with, so I'd, I, I had pre-Christian got a job running a community centre in Bath. Does anybody know the Percy Boys Club from back in the day? You know Percy Boys. So it was a boxing club originally and then it became a community centre. I took over as the manager of that and so I was running this nice little independent charity, master of all I surveyed, loads of resources and we were doing children's work and youth work and hiring it out for community things. And So I was getting up to all sorts of nice business and then one day well, I'd got to get rid of my caretaker and I was working in the community centre, mopping the floors and stuff downstairs on a Sunday morning. And there was a group of people who'd arrived saying, could we start a church in your building? And I they all seemed very nice and they had money and we needed money. So they could hire that out on a Sunday. And I was coming home saying to Sarah, there's this really weird church that started up. I don't understand it because it was not like anything that I'd ever seen. It was sort of completely free form and completely open. They all just sat in a circle and nobody seemed to, anybody could speak whenever they wanted. And she said, well, should we just go and start having a look at that? And that was my very first foray. It was the most informal, unstructured, hippie-ish thing you could have possibly imagined. But it was a gradual introduction into this is what prayer work looks like and this is what singing looks like and this is what being amongst Christians could be like, which felt really, really wonderful. Um, but the issue, main issue with that is, was that, well, I've got used to it now, but I was going to church where I worked. So I was working there all week and then coming back on a Sunday and it was extreme sort of cognitive dissonance of trying to head off into this spiritual work experience at the same time as being completely immersed in the maintenance of the building and all of these other things that you're involved in. And so we had thought, right, this isn't really working for us at the moment. It's too much trying to get out of the house. But we were living on Redfield Road and we were decorating the house and Sarah was still saying to me, I think we ought to go to church. And I was saying, Why? Why do I even need to go to church? The whole thing is ridiculous. Can't I just get on with being a Christian? And uh, in her lovely and prophetic way that she does, she said, well, I think you're going to be a vicar, so you're going to have to start going to church. Um, <laughs> which is how we then ended up at Welton. Sarah's parents had been going there, and we thought, actually, right, this would be it. It's right down the road from our house. It makes sense to go to church where you live. Still a big advocate of that. This isn't a recruitment drive for the Anglican Church, but, <laughs> but yeah, and, and to be honest, guys, it was wonderful. We had an amazing journey there. I don't know how long we were there, five years, six years? Eight. It was ages, wasn't it? It's was a long time. We were trying to map it out because you were still meeting at Norton Hill when I first joined, and then you'd moved down to Somerville for a few years before I even got baptised. 
Um, but I had come with my mindset, and it suited me so well because every suddenly, firstly, it's now instead of having loads of books, we just had one book. You know, when I was studying other things and talking to other people about beliefs and things, we were all over the map. But now we just have one book. We've got the Bible. And so we can just argue over that. And we don't. <laughs> and so that was fantastic. And not only that, but we met every week to argue about it so we could come to Matt's house and have discussions about. And all of this was like manna for me because I was built for arguing. I was made, and so I started studying everything I could get my hands on, started reading every book I could find, and, and my faith for me became this argument of figuring out what was right and what was wrong and how it should work and how it should fit together and all of these various things. And cutting a long story short to the point where we ended up crashing out of Welton because I just could not stop arguing with, with everything that was going on. I could not, anything that didn't seem to fit or make sense to me, you know, combative theology was the order of the day and I couldn't stop. And we sort of ended, yeah, so we ended up having had this wonderful journey and wonderful experience and I still hold the fact up that I was baptized by the Baptists as my sort of badge of, <laughs> of I've done each bit of the Christian journey properly, started as an atheist, baptized by the Baptists, and then eventually, yeah, matured into... <laughs> but the, um, yeah, and so we ended up at the Anglican Church in Peasdown after that. Um, this would be the part of the journey. So this is the post-baptism part of the story where we get into how things unfold from there. So I'd had this revelation of God's existence. I'd had this experience with Welton of, I understand what a Christian community can look like now. And then I had begun this huge journey of how on earth do you get all that stuff from the Bible and all the things that we actually do to fit together into something that genuinely makes sense to me. Um, and I arrived in the church in Peacetown, full of all this argumentativeness and full of all of these questions. And immediately after the first sermon and the first service, went up to the vicar and said, well, what do you make of this, this and this then? And how does this work? And, what? and he said, well, the thing is, we are just our way of doing things. We are just one branch of many of these branches. He said, all of the Anglican churches you go to will be different. And even then, we just see ourselves as one branch of all of these other ways of doing things. I was like, so you, you're, you're not saying you're the way, you're just a way. And that was the first point in my whole journey where I relaxed and realized that this wasn't about arguing and about figuring about who was doing it properly or how it was supposed to be done or any of these other things. I was able to actually just relax and start enjoying my relationship with God and enjoying the experience. Um... And I think that's how I found my home within the Anglican Church. It was the first point where no one was claiming to be right about anything. They were just muddling through. <laughs> and that whole thing of we end up with great is the mystery of faith is the sort of cornerstone of the Anglican belief system at the moment, it seems to me. We go this far down this mysterious road and then we end up saying 
And it's just mysterious because we don't actually understand God in his entirety and we never will for all of these various reasons. Um, so from there, still working in the community center, digging in more and more and more into, we were working in, I know it seems weird talking about deprivation in Bath, but Bath is a real city and has genuine deprivation, just like the villages are real places and have genuine deprivation. And we were working in quite a deprived part of Bath and we were trying to do projects around getting people back into employment and working with groups of young people and all the other. The, and the more I tried to make these projects work, the more you would realize that you were dealing with not just lack of employment, but mental health issues and physical health issues and beneath that spiritual health issues. And I was starting to think, I can't see how this is gonna work without prayer and I'm in a secular organization. And at the same time of that, I'd signed myself up to start studying theology in the evenings, and I was finishing work and then battling my way through the traffic up to Clifton to start, you know, to do my theology classes and then arriving home really late at night and doing all of these various bits and then applying for jobs in religious organizations, saying, I want to do what I'm doing now, but I want to do it within a religious organization. And, oh, this all gets horrendously complicated at this point. I'm trying to unpack these bits in the various ways so I can see how God works. But there are so many strands to the way that this thing unfolds. So I am applying to work as the administrator in Christchurch Clifton at this point. I've been at, at Peasdown Church for a few years and I'm thinking, this looks perfect. This looks like the job I have now, but within a church. I can carry on studying my theology. And as we are doing that, yeah, I'm trying to get my timeline right. Ivy gets diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So, um, so my young, my, who is now my 15-year-old daughter, who was five at the time, goes all weird. And because... We knew it from Anne's mum. Do a blood test, find out what's going on, zoom off to hospital, somewhere in hospital. I've been shortlisted for this job at this point and they're phoning me up with various questions and things and I'm having to say, I still want to go ahead with this. Right. I'll explain the kid's side of things in a minute. Um, so, Ivy gets diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, shortlisted for the job. I, Sarah is in hospital with Minnie, who is a tiny baby at this point. Minnie learned to crawl in hospital while we were there. I'm having to fill out personality profiles and psychometric tests and various things they want you to do as part of the enrollment for this thing. Still having to go to work and all the rest of it as well. And then the day that the interview for this job is supposed to take place, Ivy comes home Minnie's been crawling around on the floor of the hospital all this time. Everybody brings back hospital-borne infection with them. We are all horrendously ill. And I have to phone them up on the day of the interview to say, I'm really sorry, there is no way I can come to do this. We are all dreadfully ill. And, and the net result of all of that was the lovely vicar from Peasdown saying, I'm not entirely sure you mean you'd like to work as an administrator in a church and study theology part-time and volunteer for this and volunteer for that. I think God might be calling you to be a vicar. I still didn't really know what that actually meant at that point. <laughs> but we then start off down this road of understanding 
what it is to actually be a minister in the Anglican Church. And looking at all of the threads of my life, everything that I'd done, all the things I'd done through retail, all the stuff I'd done through music, all the things that I'd learned in the community centre, all the stuff that I'd been through with you guys, and seeing all of this rolled up into this package of like, oh, actually, I think I might have been made for this. I think this might be where I'm supposed to be. Um, now, the interview process for being a vicar is incredibly long. So I think it was three years of interviews that I went through. Obviously, not every day, but sort of every three months, you'd have to go and visit someone else, and they'd sort of vet you and give their opinion on you, and, and you go back and forth like that. Um, uh, to the point where you are then sent away to spend a whole weekend to be assessed by bishops and vicars and clergymen of different places and they'll interview you about all different parts of your life and you have to write little things you're given scenarios of pastoral things you might encounter and you'll have to write a response for it and um and it was a very unnerving experience for me it was like I'd been picked by one wing of the church and sent to face another wing of the church and I could not have been in more of an alien environment and when I got to the end of that weekend, and then they sent their report back, so this is the Bishop's Advisory Council. I probably haven't told any of you guys any of this because we don't tend to discuss it very much. They said no. They said he is not suitable at this time. And there is, there's nothing that hurts like being rejected by the church, I can tell you that, <laughs> of punching the guts of like, I think I was built for this. And now what does that mean? And anyway, again, the vicar from Peasdown had to like, this was a pull out all the stops. And so I ended up in front of the Bishop of Bath and Wells just, you know, days before he was about to retire to sit down and explain what had gone on. And he just said, this whole thing is ridiculous. I am sending you. And that was done. That's all it takes, apparently. I was his parting shot at the Anglican Church. <laughs> just before he left forever. Um, yeah, so deeply emotional and weird journey to get up to that point. And an interesting little piece of baggage for me to then carry into my ministry. Where, in fact, when I arrived at college, that was one of the first talks they gave, was when this gets really hard, when everything is difficult, you know, when you feel like you weren't supposed to be here, you can look back on your on your bishop's advisory panel, remember, they chose you and they sent you. And I thought, no, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't like the cut of my jib. Um, yeah, so after the three years of interviews, after the no, after the bishop, we then get scooped up as a family. So having lived in our tiny little house in Redfield Road, by this point we had four children. So we've got Archie, Ivy, Solly and Minnie. Um, still living in this tiny little two-bed miner's cottage, still not having any money, still just scraping by with everything we're doing. We bought the house in the middle, at the beginning of the financial crisis, so still not even in a position where we can really sell the house for what we bought it for. We were then scooped up and said, right, you now have to go and live in Henley's in Bristol. We'll give you a house. How many children have you got? Right, we'll give you a house that's big enough for your children. We'll do all of this. Our house sold just in the nick of time, so that we essentially came out on zero, <laughs> no assets, no liabilities, no house to go back to, nothing else to take with us, 
just off into this, off to Hogwarts, basically, to go and learn how to be a vicar in vicar school. They probably wouldn't like it being described as Hogwarts, but <laughs> it couldn't have been more like that, I don't think. It's this big Gothic building up on the top of Clifton Down. Um, so all of the stuff that I had then taken and shoved into my head, all of my crazy philosophy and all the rest of it, all then comes spilling back out again at this point, because now my job for two years is to study the Bible in as much detail as possible. That's the only thing they're really interested at Vicar College. They don't teach you anything else. There was a still alive debate while I was there. I had to write an essay on, are, is the minister a priest or a leader? Like, am I, is that my job to lead the church or do I just do the Sunday and go and like, all of those things were still life. But what they were interested in is, can you interpret the Bible? Can you read this book and understand what it says? That was, that was one of the interview questions I was given when I first arrived, was, have you actually read it? Like, all of it, all the way through. I was like, yeah, yeah, I have, yes. You know, a few times by then. And he said, you'd be surprised the number of people who get to this point and haven't, <laughs> still haven't read all of the Bible when they're arriving at theological college. Um... So what unfolds from there? From that point, I learned to understand the shape of the Anglican Church. And some of this, I, might, I don't know, maybe everybody understands all of this, but I didn't. Is one understanding what a balanced diet of worship looks like. Grasping that what is going on on a Sunday that looks like this weird arcane practice. This is what I was talking about just now, isn't it? All of these strange things that they get up to, and depending on which church, how they describe it as how high up the candle they are, the things can get incredibly strange indeed. But understanding that actually gathering yourselves together, confessing, knowing God's forgiveness hearing the word of God, praying, taking communion together, or the way that these things interlock into one balanced package gave me a sense of, I get what this relationship, I get finally how this relationship with God fits together. I get finally how Sunday is, what I most often describe it now as, is kind of like, I have to keep saying, this is to the regular sermon that you'll get in my church, basically, is if you think that this is what God is wants you to be doing, you have missed the point entirely. If you are turning up to church on Sunday because you think that that's what God wants, you have missed the point of church and you have misunderstood the Bible and you have lost the point of all of these things. That church is like your spiritual martial arts class. Spirit is where you go, you can safely land your plane, you can refuel, you can take off again, ready to face another week. And in that gap in the middle, you rehearse all of the responses that you then want to carry out into the world with you. That actually all of the language that we adopt, all of the things that we say, all the things that we hear from the Bible, the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray, are you remapping the pathways in your mind and you reorienting your heart and saying, actually, when I go back out into this world, I keep saying that's the most important part of the service is when you get to the end and I say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And everybody says, we will, amen. That is the most important bit because then we are sending you out. 
And with any luck, once you have imbibed that muscle memory, then every time you encounter hate, you respond with love. Every time you encounter need, you respond with service. Every time, and that is what we engender into our heads through the things that we practice. And I started to grasp the way that this could work and what the Anglican Church could do with its deep and ancient roots and practices and its embeddedness in every community that actually it can do this. And then the other thing I had to do from there then, I was given a lot of a very peculiar book about doctrine. This isn't going to be for you, Mike. But <laughs> about the way that somehow doctrine can change and stay the same at the same time. How is it that the Catholic Church, set in stone, immovable, with its pronouncements from the Pope, could still somehow be shifting? And realizing that this stuff is not about language, but this stuff is about worldview and culture. Same thing when you are mapping those paths in your brain. You're saying, I am building a culture and I'm building a worldview, a lens through which I can see the world. And that that will allow me to see it like Jesus saw it. But I was saying, well, if that is the case, then what is discipleship at this point? And I ended up writing, so I ended up now getting a master's in theology, writing about what discipleship looks like through this particular lens, through this way of understanding the church doctrine. We don't just say the words we say because this is what I believe, but we say these things because they lead us into a view of the world that allows us to interpret everything in this way. And I realized that for all the things that goes on, so the Bible, the, the best way of understanding, you know, like you've got a prism of light. If you've shone a light through a prism and it comes out as a rainbow on the other side, if you think about that the other way round, that's like the image of the Old Testament into the New Testament, that you have all these different colored strands of light come into this prism, which is Jesus. And then the beam of light that comes out the other side is us in the New Testament living in the light of what Jesus did. And all those strands that come into the Old Testament are all the threads of the story that are told. So you have these recurring themes like a fractal, like a pattern repeating again and again on a big and small scale of things like unexpected children, of things like undeserved inheritance, of things like redemption from slavery, promises from God. And all of these themes that God repeats again and again and again as he builds this culture with his, his people, as he maps this out with the Jewish people over thousands of years to build up a set of stories that would allow them to finally grasp just a little bit the scale of the problem and the need for a solution and what Jesus was actually going to do when he arrived. That as all of those stories are threaded together, the one that overarches all of them is adoption. That if you wanted a grand narrative to interpret the entire Bible, it's adoption into sonship. Adoption as God's children. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You had no say in what was going on. God just did it because he loves you like that very first encounter that I had, and that you were adopted into his family, not because of your worthiness, but because he, too, he chose to make that sacrifice. 
So this is where I was getting to, pouring through all my books, reading all of this stuff about Paul's writing of adoption and all of these things happening in the Old Testament and thinking, gosh, this is amazing. And at that point, all of my children had gone off to school and the house was quiet for the first time in years and I was immersed in study and Sarah was at a loose end and said, (laughs) without having realized where I was studying, had said, I think we ought to adopt a child. I was like, okay, so for my second year of my study, whilst I was supposed to be completing a master's in one year and doing all this stuff, we then signed up to Bernardo's and went down this route of, of adopting someone, a little tiny girl called Lily. She wasn't quite that big, but she was only four months old when she came to live with us. She was a little sprout of a thing with all this crazy hair. And that was such a beautiful and profound experience of learning about adoption as the overarching story of the Bible, understanding Jesus' sacrifice and what God was doing in what that takes to bring you into their family. Yeah, right at the very most profound moment of the whole thing, they start drilling into the wall on the other side. (laughs) But they're trying to make a listening hole is the thing. Um, But what they've actually... But what this boils down to then is that we then went through that process ourselves. That I'd realized actually one of the ways that I was understanding God's love for me was in pouring out this love for this other child. Nothing to do with my family. There was no need for us to do that. But we had the time and we now had the resources because we've been given this house that we could live in. And so we brought Lily into our family. And so we moved from there. I finished that, wrote this beautiful essay on discipleship and all of these other things, and got a curacy back in Bath again. Even though I specifically said I wanted to go somewhere else, they plonked me back in, but into Twerton and Whiteway this time, which was that's where, that's where the even more deprived parts of Bath were. They gave us a house on Hakem Drive. It's a very, very lively place. Um, and I became the curate at St. Barnabas Church. And we then got down to business. I sort of said to my tutor, what do I do with this essay now? I've written this thing. You said it was really good. Do I try and get it published? Or what? He said, no, just go and do it. Put it all into practice. And so from there, I was able to take everything that I had done running the community center. I was back in Bath, so I could get back in touch with all the people that used to give me money to run projects. We had all these kids around us, so we were able to draw loads of other people into the church. And then we just dove in headlong you know learning how to do the anglican thing but getting back to running youth clubs and children's groups and all of these other things and expressing all of that Uh, in the middle of all of this sarah also said i don't think we're full yet um deciding that we still had a tiny tiny little bit of capacity left because unfortunately i don't think the christian life is the christian life unless you're leaving it all on the field there's no point getting to the end and saying Oh, well, I ran at about 80% and that other 20% is now just going to go up in smoke. So we went through the whole process again, adopted another little girl, much more traumatic this time. She wasn't four months. She was one and a half by the time she arrived with us this time. Try explaining to a one and a half year old where their family's gone, why it was they couldn't stay with the people that they were with. But this thing 
gave me so much information about what God does for us, about what it looks like when someone that does not know God is brought in from the traumatic world outside into a family that loves them and is just embraced by that. That this was the model of discipleship that I'd realised needed to exist. That church isn't about coming and learning the rules. It's not about coming and being given a set of creeds or programmes or anything else. But actually the meaning of church as a family is being able to embrace people who have been traumatised by the world and show them that they are loved. That is our entire job as Christians. That Jesus says, all the judgment stuff, all the other things... I'll deal with that. You've got one job. Go and love each other. This is how they're going to know you. Love each other. Love the world. Go and serve everybody. And from there. And that that is the entire thing that we have then come out with. So as we landed in Poulton, now with six children... (laughs) Marie only having been adopted for, I think she'd been with us for about four or five months by the time we got here. We were then thrust into lockdown, homeschooling six children. That was an absolute nightmare that I would never, ever want to repeat. But this is where we're at, I think. I've probably gone on, probably gone on just over half an hour, I believe. This is the journey that I have been on up to this point. I am grateful for everybody that has played a part in all of it. And we are now rolling out the mission of attempting to show what love looks like without judgment. Amen. Thank you, Adam. It's, it's hard to bring all that together into a short time, isn't it, really? I, I'm just stuck with the vision of, of Sarah being at a loose end, actually. <laughs> it's a frightening prospect, isn't it, really? Yes, we try and avoid it at all costs now. <laughs> I'd just keep her busy if yeah. I was you. Yeah, thank, not only the, sharing the excitement uh, of, the, of the journey, which is a, it's that rich tapestry, isn't it? But also knowing that journey continues and God's got so much more to do in you and through you. And uh, we'll be praying for you and for your ministry and family uh, because that's what we do, isn't it, really? Yeah. And we look forward to seeing, don't we, what God does here in this area because it's just a reflection on everywhere else that needs the love of God. So thanks so much for sharing with Adam. We're going to have our dessert now, but uh, if you want to chat with Adam, I'm sure he'll be quite happy to chat with you. I'm sure he'll come back again and share with us. So bless you, Adam. Okay? Thank you.